It's not without some measure of irony that the world sneers and scoffs at Christians for being self-righteous and hypocritical. To make a denunciation of sin is to invite a flood of criticism which denounces Christians as holier than thou. To recognize sin in the world is to be recognized by the world as sinful. How ironic. Rest assured, the irony doesn't stop there. Every week we gather together before God and confess that we are sinful, that we are no better than other men who have sinned differently than ourselves. And so, unlike the world, which denies their own sin, but then points out our own, we confess our own sin first, taking the telephone pole out of our eye so that we can see more clearly to take the speck of dust out of others. And by confessing our sin and repenting of it, we are declared holy through the blood of Christ by God. This is one of the great affirmations recovered at the Reformation. This is what St. Paul says to Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It isn't by works of righteousness that we have done, it's all Christ and his mercy. This is the opposite of self-righteousness. There's no room for hypocrisy here. This is acknowledgement of our flaws and acknowledgement of needing a righteousness other than our own, or as Luther described it, an alien righteousness. So there's no irony here. There's no hypocrisy, only confession and forgiveness. This reminds us of our need to confess. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So come, let us worship and bow down. This past week, we celebrated Reformation Day, the day Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg and set off the explosion of the Protestant Reformation. Reformation Day is October 31st, which is the same day as Halloween, or All Hallows' Eve. Hallow just means holy. We pray it in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. And Eve is short for evening. So this is the evening before All Hallows' Day, or All Saints' Day, which is a celebration of the saints in the past. As Protestants, we rightly have a knee-jerk reaction to any kind of official commemoration of departed saints because the church in her past has fallen into an overemphasis of saint veneration, prayers to the saints, and so on. This has sometimes been referred to as the cult of the saints, and this cult of the saints, in my estimation, really tends to crowd out the more important things of the faith. It becomes a thick forest of intermediaries that distract from Christ. Yet, as Protestants, we don't seem to mind that we have Veterans Day or President's Day or Christopher Columbus Day or Memorial Day, where we remember the soldiers of the state who have died for the country, kind of secular saint. We have an intense and extreme veneration for their sacrifice and their willingness to commit violence on our behalf, and we should be grateful. These men have exhibited Christian love to an extent. But I think we should also recognize that our Anabaptist brothers and sisters are right in pointing out that Christ has called us to a different kingdom. Our saints are different. 
They're ones of nonviolence, of enemy love, of rebuking Peter for using the sword. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This isn't the role of the people of God. We wrestle against things unseen, and our weapons of warfare are foolishness to the world, holiness, prayer, enemy love, returning good for evil, beating our swords into plowshares. And yet, we give men who wield the sword of Caesar and Constantine more honor than men who have wielded the sword of the Spirit. And I think that this is disordered honor. And the Apostle Paul tells us to honor, to give honor to whom honor is due. So let us do our Christian duty of giving honor to the Christians of the past without failing to realize these men and women were sinners with flaws who nonetheless did great works in tearing down principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness, and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And they did so without firing a bullet, without picking up a sword, but instead did it the way God has instructed us through the preaching of the gospel and the sword of the spirit. These are far more dangerous and far more powerful weapons than earthly weapons of warfare. We read, we read Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, because it's the passage which sparked a fire in the heart of Martin Luther. He had this internal reformation after struggling with this passage and making the transition from terror to delight in the righteousness of God for those who have faith. This realization was uh, justification by faith alone. It's a scandalous but true doctrine. Theologians and pastors have been slinging ink and clacking keyboards for over 500 years debating this issue. And of course, it featured prominently among many other things as the reason for the reform of the church in the 16th century. There's a lot that can be said about this, but I simply want to say that I believe the recovery of this doctrine in the 16th century was a glorious thing, given their particular circumstances. But I think that the Protestant branch of the church, particularly among some reform types, has taken the glory out of this doctrine and made justification into this precise formula which has morphed into a monstrous litmus test for who is in and who is out of the church. They have reduced the gospel to this one doctrine. This over-scrupulousness is a source of unnecessary division, as far as I'm concerned. They've made the doctrine so that anyone who does not enunciate correctly is deemed a heretic and marginalized or prohibited from being a member. It essentially requires that believing in the doctrine of justification by faith alone is what justifies you, <laughs> rather than believing in Jesus Christ as the one who justifies you, who saves you. They have dissected the theology of justification into a thousand parts and examined each part and organized and reorganized them again, placing them under microscopes and fluorescent lights. But when you dissect something, you have to kill it. And there the doctrine lies, on the operating table, under the scalpel of a thousand theologians. It's better to just let the mystery of these truths live. Another unfortunate aspect of the justification by faith alone doctrine is that in some non-denominational or evangelical circles, or really lots of, lots of different circles, but these uh, particular evangelical circles, the doctrine has morphed into an excuse to shirk holiness and to suppress the necessity of repentance and obedience. It has become a dead faith, which James tells us is not the kind of faith that justifies. He says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and we shouldn't be afraid to say this. 
It's in the Bible, after all. And we shouldn't be afraid to say it even when Paul says that a person is not justified by the works of the law. (laughs) We simply affirm both and we move on. Those who get hung up on this point have really not discerned the times. They don't see the need of the hour. They are nerds pretending to be heroic by arguing about the minutiae that doesn't bless anyone. The attempts to find a cohesive harmonization, I think, have been achieved or closely achieved in the Protestant tradition, but we're not all scholars, we're not all theologians, and it's not necessary for us to be these things to understand the word. The word is complex, but it's also simple. All God-fearing Christians know that true faith must be an active living faith, one which works, one which loves, one which is fruitful and multiplies. And that separating belief from action is silly. Abraham believed God and he was considered righteousness, or he was considered righteous. Abraham offered Isaac and he was considered righteous. Belief and action. We could explore many facets of this doctrine, but let's shift gears for a moment and let me tell you about a man named Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel died last year, but he was a Jew who survived the Holocaust. He survived Auschwitz, Buna, and Buchenwald. And he wrote a book called Night, and in it he recounts his experience. Now we've all seen depictions in movies like Band of Brothers or Life is Beautiful or Schindler's List. Or perhaps you've read historic accounts or maybe you have visited some of these places. We're all familiar to some degree of the brutality committed in these concentration camps. We have images of emaciated bodies looking dead but not, or mass graves quickly piled up with Jewish and other prisoners as the Nazis sought to cover up what they had done, scores of humans murdered in incinerators, gas chambers, and on the receiving end of a rifle, camps flooded with death and despair. The human constitution is strong and our spirits are willing, but we all have breaking points. We all have dark moments of despair, And for Ellie, it was while he was in Buna. Ellie, the prisoners, and his family, after suffering through the misery of their experience, all come to a culmination of profound hopelessness. For Ellie, this came specifically when the Nazi Nazi soldiers erected a gallows and began to hang resistors. They hung the servant of some resistors, and the servant was just a boy. Now, usually the weight of a person is enough to break their neck when the floor drops out. But in this case, the boy's weight wasn't enough to break his neck. So Ellie and all the prisoners stood and watched as this little child agonizingly and slowly suffocated for 30 minutes until he died. And at this point, Ellie asks himself this question, where is God? Where is God now? These dark moments of human suffering, they fill all of us with horror and they fill us with sadness. Our breathing is abbreviated, we hold back tears, our hearts break. And this is where atheists get traction when we start dealing with the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and all-loving and he chooses not to intervene in something like the hanging of a child in a Nazi death camp, something that we would intervene if we had the power to do so, well then, he's either not loving or not all-powerful. 
Or as the fool will say, he just doesn't exist. We've all heard these things. We've all most likely wrestled with these questions. Christians, Christian apologists call this area of inquiry theodicy, the problem of evil. Now, it may seem strange that I'm bringing up the problem of evil, the theodicy question, because our text today has to do with what it means to be righteous. It has to do with justification. It has to do with right standing before God. The just shall live by faith. But Paul was drawing this concept from another Jewish man suffering under the governmental oppression of another nation about 2,700 years prior to Elie Wiesel's oppression under the Third Reich. This Jew was named Habakkuk. Habakkuk, like Elie, also struggled with the problem of evil as he watched his people die. He wrestled with theodicy. He asked similar questions. In Habakkuk 1, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? It sounds similar, doesn't it? Where is God now? Habakkuk is writing in a time when Israel was wicked and they were being taken over by the Chaldeans, which is another name for Babylonians. And they were being taken over by these Chaldeans because of their own wickedness. We don't know the exact nature of the violence and the wickedness, but Habakkuk is witnessing some form of violence and injustice. He is bringing these complaints, almost accusations, to God, and he's saying, where are you, God? Why aren't you doing anything? And Habakkuk and God have this back and forth, this wrestling match of hard questions. And I think we can learn something here. This prophet is not afraid to bring offensive questions to God, to have it out, to wrestle with his creator. What's happening in the world around him seems tragic, and he wants to know why God is orchestrating the tragedy. And he doesn't hold back. We often reverse this. We hold back when we pray to God, and we don't hold back when we speak to others. When we pray, we come to God, and we are tepid and shy, and we're really nice. Dear Lord, if it's not too much to ask, please and thank you. But when we look at scripture, men cry out to God. The psalmist exhibits the entire spectrum of emotions, from depression to exuberance to repentance to praise. He is fully human in his interactions with God. God knows who you are. He knows what you're like. He knows the type of person you are. You don't have to hide that from him and pretend you're someone you're not when you pray. When God comes to Jacob, Jacob wrestles with him, and Jacob would not let him go until he blessed him. Similarly, we ought to approach God in the same way, in like manner. He wants intimate interaction. He wants to hear your hard questions. He wants to answer them for you. He wants to be offended by you. He wants to have a dialogue. He wants to wrestle, and he wants to bless you. The entire book of Habakkuk is structured like a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary structure. It's a pattern found in verses, passages, and entire books of the Bible, like Habakkuk. So think of this book as a triangle or a pyramid. And the progression of the book on one side of the pyramid matches the progression 
on the other side of the pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid, you have the middle of the book. And in the middle of the book, in the middle of the chiasm, you have the most important point. You have the central theme, the connector of all of this. The key, as it were. So if we were to label different parts of uh, Habakkuk, we could label them one, two, three, and then four would be on the top of the pyramid, and then three, two, one on the other side, so they correspond somehow. That's a chiastic structure, and it's used frequently in the Bible. In the chiasm of uh, Habakkuk, real quickly, just go through it, give a rundown of Habakkuk, and, we'll, and, and I'll show you the chiastic structure. And, uh, and uh, it breaks down like this. First part, Habakkuk is frustrated with God, and he asks, why are you allowing these bad things to happen? Number two, God responds and says more bad things are going to happen. He says that he's raising up the Babylonians to execute more violence. Number three, Habakkuk's second response acknowledges that the Babylonians are a form of judgment, but still asks why God lets wicked men destroy righteous men. And then you have number four, the chiastic center. God responds by reassuring Habakkuk that the wicked will be destroyed in God's timing and that in the meantime, the just, the righteous, will live by faith. Correspondingly, the matching three, God confirms his warnings against the Babylonians. Even though they will be used to judge Israel, they are not exempt from God's judgments. Number two, Habakkuk responds in prayer remembering God's powerful wrath, wrath against his enemies, and he says that he will wait for the day of trouble for those who invade Israel. And then the corresponding one, instead of Habakkuk's frustration, you have Habakkuk's contentment, Habakkuk's surrender. Habakkuk's prayer ends in rejoicing in the Lord even when the fig tree doesn't blossom and the vine doesn't bear fruit. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's a really beautiful uh, correspondence if you look uh, um, at the text itself. We don't have time to do that today. But the interesting thing is that the center of the chiasm is what we read today in Romans, that the just shall live by faith. So you have this stark contrast from beginning to end where Habakkuk begins by inquiring to God in a kind of why aren't you running the world this way kind of attitude and it ends by trusting that God knows what he's doing. Essentially, he humbles himself because he acknowledges his proper place in the world. Does this sound familiar? It reminds me of Job. Job asks these questions, and by the end, he acknowledges his place in the universe. He acknowledges the goodness of God and the humanness of himself. Habakkuk does the same thing. Job says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Bless, blessed be the name of the Lord. Habakkuk basically says the same thing. He says, even when times are bad, even when the economy is down, even when I've lost someone very close to me, even when my health is bad, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. This can only come from recognizing your place in the world. It can only come by recognizing your place in the cosmos, recognizing that you're not God. 
your place is not as God. The medieval thinkers constantly thought in terms of properly ordered things, things having their proper place. If a, if a stone was falling, it wasn't being affected by gravity. It was finding its proper place. Habakkuk is like that falling stone. He's finding his proper place in the universe. And so we can learn with Habakkuk that our proper place in the universe is not as God. It's obvious, and yet it's very hard for us to actually live out. But that's what Habakkuk understood by the end of his prayer. He understood that God is God and that he is not. And if that there is one thing that you would walk away from the sermon with, it would be that, that God is God and you are not. That to live by faith is to acknowledge that God is God. That God has a plan of salvation, justice, and mercy. And it doesn't always make sense to us. And so like Habakkuk, we have to trust that God's way of doing things is better than our way of doing things. This, in part, is what it means to live by faith. But it isn't the whole story. We see that Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in his letter to Romans, as our text read earlier. But he also quotes this in his letters to the Galatians and the Hebrews. In each of these, we're getting a fuller understanding, a different aspect, a more in-depth look to this truth that the just shall live by faith. So let's take a look at each of these quotations in context, starting with our Romans passage. Paul's letter to the Romans is perhaps the most explicit treatment of justification in the New Testament. Protestants really like to camp out here, almost to a fault. But Paul quotes Habakkuk in chapter 1, and it's almost like this thesis statement. From the beginning of the letter, he's talking about his work as an apostle and bringing about the obedience of faith in all the nations. He says the Romans' faith is known throughout the whole world, and he says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God which brings salvation to those who believe, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And then he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, leading up to this point, Paul is using the language of nations, of the world, of Jews and Gentiles. There's a universal theme going on, a Catholic theme. And then he quotes Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk, if we, if we look at the, the quotation that he uses and we go and we read that in full, only ten verses later, Habakkuk says, The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. Habakkuk prophesies the universality of men knowing God's glory. This anticipates the grafting in of the Gentiles to the covenant of God. And that's what Paul mentions here. The Jews first and then the Gentiles. So when Paul mentions the righteousness of God being revealed, in this sense it means God's promise keeping. And his promise keeping is being revealed in the faith of the Gentiles. In the grafting in of the Gentiles, God said the nations were going to come in, and now they are. What God said would happen is happening. But in the first part of Habakkuk, and what historically had happened, exactly the opposite was occurring. The Chaldeans are the ones who are gathering in the nations. They are bringing people to themselves. Habakkuk 2.5 reads, He gathers to himself, he being the Chaldeans, all nations, and heaps up for himself all peoples. (laughs) 
these are Chaldeans sitting in the throne of God, acting like God. On a similar note, in Habakkuk 1, the nations are described like fish of the sea, and the Chaldeans are catching them with their fishing hooks and their nets. Sound familiar? Where else are men described as fish and men? Described as catching other men like fish. Jesus tells his disciples that he would make them fishers of men. That's what evangelism is described as. I will make you fishers of men. In the new covenant, the who is catching who is reversed. The godly catch the ungodly through the sword of the spirit instead of the ungodly catching the godly through the sword of the state. But here in Habakkuk's day, the Chaldeans are the ones catching men. They are doing this kind of anti-evangelism. They are trying to be like God. They are attempting to say that there is not one square inch of the universe that is not mine, but only God can say that. It is God who gathers the nations to himself, not the Chaldeans. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, not the Chaldeans. The earth is the Lord's and not Alexander's. The earth, the earth is the Lord's and not Caesar's. The earth is the Lord's and not Napoleon's. The earth is the Lord's and not America's. Jesus is ruler of all things and all must submit to him. This means every nation and every ruler of every nation. This is what was promised to Abraham. Abraham was promised the world. Paul reminds the Galatians of this. In Galatians he says, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. God tells Abraham, count the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Count the sand. That's how many children you will birth. And the children of Abraham, Paul tells us, are those who live by faith in Christ. Christians are more truly sons of Abraham than modern-day Jews who have rejected their Messiah. We are the sons of Abraham. Because Jesus came in like a meteor hitting the earth and an explosion of Christianity occurred in the first century. It was an uncontrollable wildfire of the Holy Spirit spreading everywhere and it altered the course of Western civilization to the present and ultimately to the world because we see that fire continuing to spread in Africa, in South America, in Asia. The number of Abraham's children is astounding and this is the promise of God being fulfilled. This is in part what it means for the just to live by faith. It is believing the promises of God, believing that God is a promise keeper, that he will bring the nations to himself. And what happens when you believe the promises of God? When one believes that God is trustworthy, that he really does what he says he'll do, you're considered righteous. Scripture says there is imputed righteousness for those who believe. This is a contested idea by many people. Um, but Paul says in Philippians 3, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul blamelessly kept the law. He tells us this right before this but that in Christ he has a righteousness that comes from God and not from himself on the basis of faith. If you go to chapter 3 of Romans, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. Or if you go forward to chapter 4, Paul brings up Abraham. Abraham puts his trust in God's promise that he would be heir to the world. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed that God would give him the world, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul goes on to say that it wasn't only for Abraham's sake that this was written, but it was written for our sake. And he says, and I quote, that it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And as we read during our confession exhortation, Paul says to Titus, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And lastly, we have the often quoted passage from Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift, so nobody can brag about it. Salvation belongs to the Lord and not to you. You are not the salvation of, the, of your soul. You are not the captain of your own ship. And yet look at what we are saved to. We are saved to good works. We are to walk in them. The idea of imputed righteousness, of an alien righteousness credited to us, can be difficult to grasp at times, and it's understandable. And Paul anticipates this. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can you continue in sin when you've died to it? I think Ambrose, one of our early church fathers, gives us a, a really helpful illustration of what imputed righteousness looks like. He says that Jacob's deception before his father Isaac to get his blessing shows what it's like to have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. Jacob puts hair on his body and food and the clothes of his brother's smell. Ambrose says, Jacob doesn't merit the birthright in himself, 
So he has to impersonate his brother by putting on his clothes and approaches his father so that he can receive a blessing to his own advantage, though under the person of another. So we conceal ourselves under the purity of Christ, our firstborn brother, that we may obtain an attestation of righteousness from God. This, I think, beautifully illustrates justification and the imputed righteousness we have in Christ. In addition, it answers some of our questions about the problem of evil. It has uh, punished the sins of every person who believes in Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 2. The crucifixion of Christ deals with the injustice that you have committed personally. And yet, by placing your faith in him, you clothe yourself in his righteousness and receive the inheritance that belongs to him. But it isn't stolen. It is freely given. Paul quotes Habakkuk to the Galatians. In Galatia, he was dealing with Judaizers, men who were urging the saints in Galatia to get circumcised in order to be truly human, or to be truly Christian, which to be truly Christian is to be truly human. And Paul rebukes them by saying that the law does not justify, but that the just will live by faith, chapter 3, verse 11. Now, I think it's a mistake to read 16th century debates on justification, forensic justification, this declaring of righteousness back into the text here. Uh, it is there, but uh, the issues are different, and we have to account for those. Paul is really concerned that Gentiles know that they don't need to become Jews to become part of God's covenant people. Uh, they don't need to become Jews to become Jews. <laughs> they are justified like Abraham was prior to the law. There's a lot going on here, but I want to zero in on the example that Paul uses, and that is of two women, Hagar and Sarah. Hagar represents the law, which Paul says is slavery, and Sarah represents the promise to Abraham, which we have already discussed, the promise to give Abraham the world through his son, Isaac, um, which doesn't really have to do with blood lineage. It is blood lineage, but it also has to do with faith. Paul says this is freedom. Sarah is promised a child. Abraham and Sarah didn't believe God's promises of a son through Sarah, who was old, and according to rational thinking people, uh, she couldn't have kids anymore. And so they decided to work out their own salvation to force God's promises, and they carried out God's plan for him because God just wasn't coming through. He wasn't doing it the way they wanted it to be done. And so Sarah has Abraham sleep with Hagar. And then we get Ishmael. And from that point on, there was tension between Sarah and Hagar, and Isaac and Ishmael, and so on and so on. The tension pervades down to the present day. Many Arabic Muslims trace their lineage to Ishmael. There's a man named uh, Mosab Hassan Youssef, who is the son of one of the leaders of Hamas. Hamas is this terrorist organization dedicated to liberating Palestinian uh, to liberating Palestine from Israeli uh, occupation and at the beginning of one of his books Yusuf says that the conflict between Israel and Muslims goes back to Isaac and Ishmael 
So the actions of Abraham in this instance created a mess, and it's because he wasn't operating in faith. He wasn't willing to trust in God and wait. So we have Ishmael through Hagar. Paul says Hagar represents slavery. Hagar represents not trusting God and trying to work out your own salvation. She represents impatience with God. And this is not unlike Habakkuk's and Ellie's initial complaints. God, where are you? God, why aren't you doing anything? God, why isn't my wife pregnant? We're old. Where are you? It's the same thing. God isn't doing anything, so I have to play the part of God. We're in Habakkuk's power. We're Habakkuk God. He may have executed judgment on a different time scale than what God had planned. He would have pulled a Hagar. And we can look back on these guys, Habakkuk and Abraham, and gawk at their impatience, at their unbelief, their sinfulness on display for generations to read about. But if we're honest with ourselves, we no doubt struggle with the same unbelief, the same impatience, the same uh, distrust. Because we want control, we want to know, we want salvation, and we want it on our own terms. We want promises fulfilled in our own way and on our own timelines. We want vindication. We want vengeance. We want justice. Vindication, vengeance, justice, salvation. These are not bad things in themselves. These are good things. But they're good only when God only when they come from God, in God's way, on God's timeline. So we have to say, I'm not God. God is God. I am not. You have to renounce your desire to be in the place of God. Satan wanted a good thing. God is a good thing. To rule is a good thing. But he went about it the wrong way. And that's what Hagar is all about. Abraham tried to be God and it didn't work. God is God. Abraham isn't. God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God is God and Job is not. The serpent says, just eat the fruit and you'll be like God. Surely you won't die. God is God and Eve is not. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. God is God and Satan is not. It's all over scripture, bringing us back again and again to the fact that the just will live by trusting in God as God and not in themselves. The just will live by faith. Lastly, in Hebrews, Paul quotes Habakkuk in chapter 10, verse 38, which reads, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Paul is emphasizing enduring, the enduring nature of faith, the emphasis on living out of faith that doesn't shrink back. Paul is saying, we don't shrink back to destruction. Those who shrink back who abandon their faith, are destroyed. God takes no pleasure in that person. The kind of faith that justifies evidence itself and perseverance, that's the thrust here. And the thing about perseverance is that you have to have something to persevere through. There has to be something going against you. There has to be adversity. There has to be pushback. There has to be an antagonist. There has to be darkness, like Ellie saw in Buddha. Or Habakkuk saw with the Chaldeans. Or Abraham saw as years went by and his wife didn't get pregnant. 
this too gives us more answers to the problem of evil. Because without evil, there's nothing to persevere through. There's no battle to be fought. There's no conflict. There's no bad guys. It's just cake, frosting, and balloons all day, every day. But this is not the case. And there's a reason this is not the case. Because no good story consists of cake, frosting, and balloons all day, every day. Good movies always have some kind of conflict or antagonist. We like good movies. We like good stories because God likes good stories. And in the story of redemptive history, we, he has chosen to make his people warriors in a grand conflict, an epic war, a cosmic battle. And warriors don't go to battlefields to lay on hammocks. They go to battlefields to resist and persevere and sacrifice. Marcus Luttrell, the Navy SEAL who fought in Afghanistan and had the movie uh, Lone Survivor made after his story, he gave a speech to uh, the Alabama uh, football team, uh, college football team, a few years ago, and he talked about the type of perseverance that SEALs have in battle. And he, he said this to him, I'm a war fighter, and if I get shot, I'm going to pick myself up until you shoot me again and kill me. Basically, I'm not going to stop, ever, period. That's the kind of perseverance Paul is talking about in Hebrews. And then he launches into a litany of Old Testament warriors who, by this kind of persevering faith, did glorious things for the kingdom. Some of them did very grand and mighty things like made an ark or conquered kingdoms or crossed over the Red Sea on dry land. But others endured mockings, floggings, chains, imprisonment, and death. The just will live by faith. And sometimes that means the just will live by a faith which conquers kingdoms. Sometimes it means the just will live by a faith that gets them sawn in two. But both of these things are glorious and faithful. And both are only done by the type of faith that trusts in God's promises, so much so that they're willing to endure all kinds of evil and injustice all the way to the end. So, to wrap things up, we began by touching on the problem of evil, which is prominent in Habakkuk. And it's also woven through the tapestry of Paul's letters. And that the fundamental resolution to this problem is the sovereignty of God. And when we trust that, when we believe that God is who he says he is and does what he says he'll do, we become a people of faith, a faith that justifies. We are justified because God is the great justifier, and he only is the justifier. If he sufficiently deals with evil, when he sufficiently meets out justice, and he does, he will punish the wicked and correct the injustice, and you may not see every injustice corrected immediately or even in your lifetime, but the moment you take issue with when, where, and how God administers his justice, you're grasping at sovereignty, which only belongs to him. You're setting yourself up as God. God is sovereign and we are not. God saves you. God gives you his righteousness. God gives you the faith to believe him. God punishes the wicked in his own way, in his own timing. It's all God, and it's not you. And the theodicy issue is answered by God on the cross. Habakkuk's chief concern is that God do something about wicked men and the injustice of wicked men killing righteous men, which on the cross, wicked men are killing a righteous man, the righteous man. But in that moment, God is also dealing with the evil of his people. 
Not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. In Christ, God deals with the evil that's in you. And he has dealt with the evil rulers of darkness and is putting all enemies under his feet as I speak now. He has beaten death and he has promised that he will one day return and put all things right. And all of these things are the promises of a God who keeps his word. So believe it, live it, and be glad because God is God and you are not. This is what it means for the just to live by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for keeping your promises to us and granting us the ability to trust in those promises. Give us the strength to live by those promises and to persevere when things are dark and evil. We praise you for sending your son who has saved us and begun to redeem the world. We trust that he will one day return and make all things right. Amen. Jesus tells us in John 6 that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Here, the sacrament answers the problem of evil, because all the injustice in the world is the opposite of this. It is men feeding on the flesh of other men, through rape, pornography, slander, devouring each other out of strife and envy, drinking the blood of millions of unborn children in order to have a life of a certain kind, tyrants drinking the blood of saints through martyrdom and so forth. The Bible talks about the spirit of Jezebel being drunk with the blood of the saints, and John the Baptist's head is offered on a platter. Paul describes the Galatians as biting and devouring each other. This goes to show that men are cannibals. All men are cannibals. The injustices they commit is likened to eating and drinking each other. This business of eating and drinking flesh and blood is another one of those witch, not weather deals. So take your pick. If you choose to eat and drink anything other than the body and blood of Christ, you're, con you're contributing to the injustice in the world. But Jesus has reversed this problem by offering himself. He says, here I am. In order to right all these wrongs, you must consume me. Instead of men consuming other men and committing every wrong, Jesus offers himself to right every wrong. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving your son, for giving your son's body and brokenness on the cross to us so that our sins and the sins of the whole world would be sufficiently dealt with. May we always remember this and proclaim it until you come. Amen. The charge is this. God is God and you are not. The world is filled with bad stuff and God has promised to deal with all that bad stuff in his own way and in his own timing. So believe that he will. Don't try to act the part of God when it's not your place to do so. Trust him, believe him, live like you believe him, and by do doing so, you will be justified. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.